Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. So there you have it. It's a fresh think on how we view spirituality. Welcome, welcome. It is Thursday afternoon, fresh thinking time. And if you did not catch fresh thinking this time last week, there's a very good reason for that, and that is I wasn't in studio. In fact, that's part of what I'd like to share with you today, where where I was and what I was up to last week. Whenever I come back at this time of the year from the Kinus HaShluchim, the International Conference of Chabad Shluchim Rabbis from around the world. It's so uplifting and so motivating that I feel compelled to have to share at least a little bit. It's a glimpse of what it was all about with, with all of you because ultimately I feel that those of us who were there were not there in a personal capacity. We were there as your representative, as your, uh, Extension, I suppose. So it's only fair that we give some feedback. If you've ever attended or experienced or would love to or dreamt about or watched it online, the Kinos in New York, why don't you share that with us? I'd love to hear your personal experiences or maybe something that you've heard or a question that you might have about the whole experience. So you can text 34519. You can send a message via the Telegram app on 0618951019. And you can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet me directly at Rabashish. It's quite something. We haven't even started the show. And on Twitter already we have a question. Will this be available in podcast? So usually it is. Pop onto the Chai FM website and you will find podcasts of pretty much all of the shows, this one included. So go ahead and indulge and help yourself. We're going to, I'm, I'm going to try today just to paint a little bit of a picture of some of what went on at this really incredible experience in New York last week. Share some of the inspiration and some of the stories with you. Invite you to participate in the conversation. Ask me a question that you might have about what you have or have not heard or would be curious to know about the kino. So perhaps you have a story to share. Love to hear from you. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So, here we are. Here we are. Thursday afternoon, towards the end of the year, I think everybody's starting to feel it. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling that winding down or that desperation just to get over the finish line, smelling the sea or wherever it is that you plan to go in December and just wishing that you were already there, but there's still work to be done, things to complete. Well, let me tell you something. Coming back, and it's so funny how the calendar works because... We living in the Southern Hemisphere, we come off some of the most inspirational times of the Jewish calendar straight into downtime. So we come out of the, the holiday season, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchas Torah, and then just a few weeks later, everybody's like, okay, time to chill. Similar kind of an experience having come back now from the Kinos HaShluchim in New York, and I'll tell you exactly what that is, but on such a high and so motivated. And then, well, hang on a second, there's nobody around really to motivate right now because everybody's uh, rushing to deadline for the end of the year. And then hoping to get out of town. So it's a little difficult to have the opportunity to translate that motivation. But let that not be an impediment. So see so the story. So what is this thing and, and where was I and what's it all about? It goes back to 1983. 
Once upon a time, 1983 didn't feel so long ago. In 1983, the Lubavitcher Rebbe initiated a gathering for Chabad Shluchim, rabbis who represented communities across the United States. 65 rabbis attended for a conference, and I suppose they shared ideas and inspiration and encouraged each other to go on and do what it is that they needed to do in terms of bringing Judaism to all kinds of communities in all kinds of environments. And a few years later, in 87, the Rebbe stressed that it should become an international conference. In other words, not just the U.S. rabbis, but Kinus Hashluchim Ha'oilami, worldwide conference. And there's a very, very subtle message in that, or maybe not so subtle. I was listening to one of the very interesting speakers exactly a week ago, last Thursday, and he was saying that... The point over here is it's not about a whole bunch of people coming together from different countries around the globe and and sharing ideas or inspiration. It's actually about the entire globe being represented. So it's not that should stand there thinking of themselves as an individual. Rather, each person should feel themselves responsible for an entire community back home. It's a very real thing. So in the 80s, it was a handful of people, a handful of rabbis, 60, 100, something like that, rabbis. Last week, we were... Kane Ein as we say, 5,800 people eventually at the culminating dinner. Not all of them being rabbis, there were guests as well. Very large contingent actually from Anglo countries, a lot of Englishmen, a lot of um, Australians. So that was interesting. And, you know, all these people coming together, it's just, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal experience because you literally have the entire world Represented. In fact, I was actually thinking about it afterwards. You know, having attended the the kinos for a number of years, it's given me an opportunity to meet people who ordinarily I would not have met, and this entire network of people who I have a personal relationship with. Uh, just thinking very briefly of who it was that I said hello to and caught up with over the course of a few days in New York, the chief rabbi of Ireland who's a contemporary, who's my age, um, and we've become friendly over the years. The, the rabbi to Beijing, the, the head of the Chabad in Beijing, who's in fact married to a South African, and the rabbi of Kauai, probably, if I understand correctly, the last community in the world to bring in Shas, all the way on the far west side of the globe. Friends from Canada from the UK met the rabbi from Kigali. Did you know that there is a Chabad in Rwanda? Well, now you know. Found out. Found out. I was uh, had a bus ride sitting next to a fellow who is the rabbi of a community in a. Ret- it's a retirement community in Mexico, outside of Mexico City. People from the Americas who have settled there. Uh, a lot of artists and poets and uh, retired business people. Really, really interesting place. Um, spent some time with the rabbi of Iceland. He is the, the rabbi, the one and only, <laughs> the one and only rabbi in Iceland. And uh, I mentioned to him that two years ago I was actually present at the time when he made his proposal to the committee that oversees the, you know, sending Chabad representatives all over the world. And I happened to, I just happened to be in the room when he came with his presentation arguing for a Jewish establishment in Reykjavik, which is where he is now posted. I'd actually love to go spend some time over there. Chatted to a friend from Chabad in Oslo who had sent us guests for Pesach this past 
past year, this past Pesach. So that was a nice catch up, you know, oh, how did the people, how did they enjoy it and this and that, that kind of an experience. It's really quite something, but you know, sometimes we take so much for granted. I'll tell you, to me, this is one of the most important things that I have to share from having been at this Kinos. Because the day I landed, a friend of mine from the UK came over and he said, oh, Shalom Aleichem, it's nice to see you. How are things in South Africa? And that became a question that uh, I was asked quite a number of times. So I guess there is a sense out there that people are aware of the fact that our community is feeling the pressure and sentiment maybe is not as strong or as positive as it should be. I know that everybody at the moment, the last few weeks particularly, speaking about emigration and this one's leaving and that one's having an aliyah sale and, and so on. So the news is definitely out there. So this fellow came over and he says, what's What's uh, the situation in South Africa? So I said to him, listen, I'm finding that sentiment is very negative. People are at the moment very despondent. And there's, there's concern about corruption and about uh, the policy and direction of the government and about infrastructure and about the economy and about safety and crime, future of our children, education, various things. And he laughed, which is not what I had expected. He laughed and he said, uh, you sound exactly like my community. I said, what are you talking about? You live in, in, in the UK, you live in London, what are, what are you talking about? Sound like your community. He says, no, you have to understand that we've got an election coming up and labor is very frightening and they, uh, the people are worried about the stability of the, of the government and they're worried about the economy in the face of Brexit. And, and, and I laughed at him when he says, and our currency is devalued. I'm like, you don't understand what it means to have a devalued currency. And Jews are worried about anti-Semitism and they're worried about the education system and they're worried about healthcare. It was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. That became a theme. How a good portion of the rabbis that I had spoken to from first world countries were talking about how negative the sentiment is in their communities at the moment. So I just thought that was really interesting. And it's something that I would like to share because I don't know if you know, the World Economic Forum in 2017 rated South Africa as the single most unnecessarily pessimistic society in the world. And there's really something to think about. Maybe we're just a little bit too pessimistic for our own good. What do you think? Three four five one nine if you'd like to send an SMS. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So talking about the kinos, I just thought it was really interesting to share how many people, and it was people from the States, from Canada, in fact, it was really interesting speaking to a fellow from Montreal and he was saying, you in South Africa have a blessing from the Rebbe that things are going to be okay. He says, it reminds me very much of how we are here in Montreal, hanging on to the blessing that we were given. I, I don't know much of the history or, or I'm not even really up to date on what's going on over there. But apparently, apparently there's a lot of negativity in Montreal, Canada at the moment in the Jewish community. I guess, I guess it's not something that is altogether unique to us. The other thing that, of course, is always interesting and always intriguing is just to understand the nature of communities and what their particular challenges are, because every community has its unique challenges. So I spent time with a fellow. He's also married, interestingly enough, to a South African, and they are the Chabad representatives in a place called Sumi in Ukraine. And what's interesting, he told me, just try and get your head around this. I mean, we complain about all kinds of things, about the state of our roads, for example. So he says, in order to get to the airport, to be able to fly in, 
for the Kinos, just the drive to the airport is a five-hour drive. Now, could you imagine? Just, just try and picture that. Can you imagine like driving to Durban to catch a plane? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre thought, right? And that just gives you an indication of how remote the community is. And when he asked me about how things are in South Africa, and I began to tell him, he really thought that that, that, that was absolutely bizarre, the kind of things that we complain. I believe that the Ukraine is rated as one of the most corrupt countries in the entire world, quite far ahead of South Africa in that sense. And poverty, real poverty, and lack of amenities, you know, we... we we think we have infrastructure problems here. We're talking about people who for many years didn't even have, I'm talking about the rabbi, didn't have hot water in their home. And no question about it. When you speak to people and you understand how privileged we are in terms of Jewish infrastructure, we are really privileged. The fact that we have schools, good schools, the fact that, I mean, we complain about the cost of kosher chicken. You have no idea how many of these communities wish that they had access to kosher meat on demand. Some of the rabbis have trained themselves to to know how to shech chickens, and that's how they live. Others ship or truck their food in, say, you know, four times a year, whatever the particular case might be. They they don't have schools. A, a very large portion of these communities do not have Jewish schools, so the kids either go to, most of the Jewish kids will attend non-Jewish public schools, and the rabbi's children will typically be involved in what is called the online school. And it's this massive network of kids around the world who participate in virtual classrooms, and that's how they get their Jewish education, which is quite something, you know, when you, things we take for granted. We, we do complain, complain about, uh, maybe we complain about the teachers, we certainly complain about the school fees, we certainly complain about kosher products, and then you see how many people there are. I mean, speaking to a person who, every time that his wife wants to use the mikveh, it's a six-hour drive to the, to the mikveh. Or, or the other one, the Chabad in Nepal, where they go an hour's drive and then an hour's hike up a mountain and crack the ice in this little lake in order to be able to use the mikveh. Just think about that for a second. And that's not only the dedicated staff of the Chabad community, the rabbi, his wife. These are the members of the community as well. This is this is how they live. This is their level of dedication to the Judaism, which is absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I spent a long time speaking to a fellow who lives, and I, I specifically want to share this because I think it's such an insight into how protected we are as a South African Jewish community. I know that there's there's a lot of controversy at the moment about the ADL having released a report that exaggerates anti-Semitism in South Africa. I mean, having seen the nature of the report, I'm gobsmacked. I don't know where they got this kind of information from because the reality is, the reality is over here, we don't experience anti-Semitism in your face on a regular basis. I mean, I was in Brooklyn, New York, and... People there are afraid. They're afraid of anti-Semitic attacks because that's what's been happening for the last few months. Randomly on the street, people walking uh, from something as, uh, I mean, it's it's absolutely nasty, but it's not it's not physically brutal. Um, people having slurs shouted at them. But quite a number of incidents, eggs thrown at, at Jewish people walking down the street in religious neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Uh, people having their yarmulkes or their hats hit off their heads. People having the windows of their cars smashed or their tires slashed. And then, of course, there was that story before Yontav. Uh, and I, I, 
I had to walk past this particular spot. It's a park in Crown Heights. And I had to walk past that park uh, on two or three occasions during the course of the kinos, knowing that just a few weeks ago, an, a, a man in his 60s or even 70s was attacked there by a guy who whacked him in the face with a concrete block and, and put him in hospital. And I, I mean, that, that's Brooklyn, New York. So, you know, you talk about anti-Semitism. I really, really think, thank God, we are quite protected over here. But specifically, having spoken to this fellow who I'm about to tell you about, you realize that we're protected in another way, too. And it's so important for us to be grateful and appreciative of the privileges that we have as a South African Jewish community. The Not just the freedom to practice, which is quite universal in most Jewish countries. I'm not talking about my friend from Istanbul, for example, who, although free to practice, has to be quite cautious about how he practices and, and where he goes and what he looks like when he walks on the streets. But we're very sheltered over here from the creep of assimilation. I'm not saying there's no assimilation in South Africa. Unfortunately, there is, and it's growing. But so here's the story. This fellow, he and his family live in a place called Boise, Idaho. Now, I don't know anything about Idaho. I just know that potatoes come from Idaho. That was literally the only thing that I know. And so I didn't even have a sense of geographically where Idaho is. Didn't realize that it's quite northwest. And the the next closest Jewish community is Salt Lake City in Utah. So it just gives you a little bit of a sense of where it is. And if I'm not mistaken, the next closest after that would be uh, Seattle. So Northwest is quite isolated. Boise, Idaho is considered the most isolated city, metropolitan city in the United States. So the way that they work it out is anything with a population over a quarter of a million people. So out of any city with a population of over a quarter of a million people, Boise, Idaho is the single most isolated. Now, just to give you a sense of what that is. This is the only Chabad representative in the entire state of Idaho. Outside of their Chabad house, there is one other institution to represent the Jewish community, and that is a reform temple. That's it. Nothing else. No school, no JCC, Jewish Community Center, as you have in the bigger cities. No Jewish Federation, which is like the Board of Deputies. Nothing. There's nothing. There are two institutions. There's a reform temple and there is Chabad. That's it for the entire state. And I was just chatting to him about it, like, well, you know, are there any remote Jews scattered around the state? And maybe you go visit them from time to time. So he explained to me that from where he lives in Boise, if he were to travel to the northernmost part of Idaho State, it's a 10-hour drive. So that's that's kind of almost here to Cape Town, but you're still in the same state. Very sparse, very spread out, blue-collar community, not a whole lot of money flying around, and they are trying to run a community over there. 95% intermarriage rate, 95%. He says that effectively he and his wife run two parallel communities because the Jewish men who are married out come to shul and engage with him, but their spouses and children don't come. And the Jewish women who are married out come to the Chabad house and interact with the wife, but their husbands don't attend. And so they've got like these two parallel communities. I mean, just like quite a thing, quite a thing to imagine, you know, when you actually think about it. So, so he was telling me, there they are. They, they live in this place in Boise. They've been there for quite a number of years. I think about 15 years already by now. And there's no such concept as having a daily minion. The truth is they don't have a minion most Shabbos. They have to make special effort in order to have a minion. So like once a month, they make a whole big deal. And, you know, and then people come to shul. And 
you can you can just try and get your head around what what it is that these people are dealing with because the minute somebody becomes more engaged in their Judaism, they pack up and leave town because nobody wants to live there. There's no infrastructure. There's no school. There's no mikvah. There's nothing. So in order to be able to pursue a Jewish life, he says those couples along the way over years who have become more engaged with their Judaism have left. They've gone to Chicago. They've gone to Pittsburgh. Just again to give you a sense of where this place is, at Boise, Idaho, there is no direct flight from there to New York. I mean, just think about that. You're in the United States. You're in, it is the largest city in the state of Idaho, but it does not have a direct flight to New York. That blew my mind completely when he, when he said that. Just gives you a sense of how isolated it is. And they've got to then bring food in by truck from Atlanta or wherever it is that they bring it in on a quarterly basis, stock it up in a freezer. And that's how they live. The kids are part of this online school, but unfortunately for them, because of they just the way that it works, Idaho falls into its uh, a weird time zone. So their kids only start school at something like ten o'clock in the morning. So the entire morning they've got to look, you know, come up with something for the kids to do before they begin this online school. And socializing is very difficult. The kids don't really have many friends. And he told me a wonderful story about how one of his children was on a local basketball baseball team one of the two and he was the only jewish kid on the on the team obviously and there he is with his yarmulke and you know running for base or whatever it was that he was doing and his, if his yarmulke would fall off he would stop and the, everybody respected him for it which is true to say for anybody who stands up for what they believe in they they tend to attract respect and sometime later a colleague of his who is a Chabad representative somewhere else in the United States was at uh, one of these little league games or wherever it was, and this person comes up and says, are you Chabad? And he looks at them and says, excuse me, ask him, but you don't look like you're Jewish. How do you even know what Chabad is? <laughs> you know, how do you even know what Chabad is? He says, no, I used to be the coach for this team back in Idaho where there was this little boy who used to play, and he was Chabad, and he was very careful about his um, his commitment to his religious uh, rituals and observance. And I think that's such a wonderful thing because it just shows you that when you walk around proud of who you are and what you represent, people respect that. And not only do they respect it, they, they're impressed by it. And I think that's a wonderful lesson. And it reminds me just a little bit about a, a, another story which I'd, I, I, it was so powerful. It happened in the room. It was almost like it was scripted. There was a particular session that we were at, and the speaker was Rabbi Yehuda Tachtel, who is the rabbi, the Chabad rabbi of Berlin. I think he might even be the chief rabbi of Germany. I don't, I don't know. That, that could be incorrect. But anyway, he's, he's the Chabad rabbi in Berlin, and he's got this incredible, incredible access to the government, just really quite impressive. So anyhow, he gave a whole presentation. It was a very inspiring presentation, and at the end, he opened the floor to questions. And this particular this particular workshop was both for rabbis and for supporters of the Chabad community. Um, so, you know, they they uh, we had we had guests like I had a guest and other people had guests, whatever. And we we uh, heard this whole presentation. And he opened up for questions afterwards, and this fellow. Says I'd like to ask a question. American guy says I'd like to ask a question. He says I travel to Cologne on a monthly basis for business, and whenever I go, I feel a little bit uncomfortable because I'm, I'm worried about anti-Semitism, and I don't know if I should walk around wearing a yarmulke, wearing a kippah. So, what would you advise? And the the rabbi says, Look, I, I'm not going to answer this question, but I have a guest here who's accompanied me, and I'll ask him 
I'll ask him to respond because he's actually involved in a project where he sponsored 2,000 beautiful velvet yarmulkes with a nice logo on. And he encourages people to wear these yarmulkes as a sign of Jewish pride in Germany. Now, just think about that for a moment, to be in Germany, which incidentally is the fastest growing Jewish community in the world. They have a quarter million Jews in Germany. It's quite something if you consider it. And anyhow, so this guy is involved in this particular project. He says, I'm going to defer to him. Let him answer your question. And it, it was almost like it could have been scripted. The fellow gets up, doesn't say a word, walks over to this American fellow, and he hands him one of these German-produced velvet yarmulkes with this slogan in German about Jewish pride. And he says, do me a favor. Whenever you go to Cologne, wear this on your head. Such a powerful, it was a powerful moment. I mean, you got a tremendous round of applause from everybody who was there. But the message is a very strong message. And, you know, we're, today's Rosh Chodesh, and it's the beginning of the month of Kislev, which is most famous for the festival of Hanukkah. This is the time of the year which is all about generating light whenever you feel that the world is dark. And I felt that that was a very strong message that came through from a number of the people who shared things at the Kinos. And it's a great message that we could take for ourselves into our own lives. When you see darkness in the world, when you see negativity, and when you feel uh, inclined to be pessimistic, there's no need to get stuck in that pessimism. In fact, on the contrary, your response should be, and it's an opportunity, to share light, to do something that's going to illuminate the world. And part of that light is to stand up with pride and say, I belong to this unique group of people, the Jewish people. We have this unique message and mission from God. And a big part of our mission is to transform the world and make it into a positive place and a healthy place and a spiritual place and an elevated place. And... That's why I'm, I'm actually quite proud to walk down the street and display this. And what's fascinating, having spoken to this rabbi, or ha- I should say having listened to this rabbi from Berlin speak, is how much in German society today there is this sense of that respect, that respect for the Jewish people and what Jews represent. And they're busy building, listen to this for a thing, they're busy building in Germany, in Berlin, a 25 million euro complex that will be designed to educate people about what Jews and Judaism are are, are all about. And it's going to become part of the training of every single civil servant in Berlin uh, is going to have to go through this process to familiarize themselves with what the Jewish people are, what our heritage is, what we represent. A lot of the big corporates, he quoted specifically Volkswagen and Mercedes, they're going to send their employees as well just to create a sense of the value of the Jewish people and to ensure that there's never a, another anti-Semitic uh, uprising, God forbid, in Germany. It, it was absolutely fascinating. Really, it was fascinating to see and to hear. And I felt that that represented a lot of what many of these rabbis at this conference represent to bring light into a place of darkness rather than to get caught up and and afraid and that's probably why the entire experience is so upbeat because it's an experience of light there's a lot of camaraderie there's a lot of informal fabring and people sitting together sharing stories singing i mean the energy is is absolutely immense and everybody there focused on the objective of how do we go back to where we live and bring light one of the speakers was uh, rabbi shalom lipska he's the rabbi of the shul of bell harbor in florida in fact his brother is the head of chabad here in south africa rabbi mendel lipska and he he pointed out a very, very interesting thing. He invoked a particular talk that the Rebbe had given 
And he, he mentioned how our responsibility as rabbis and by extension as the Jewish people is not only to the Jewish community, but our responsibility extends to the entire world, to every human being, to share a message with every single human being and, and a message of light and a message of upliftment and a message of inspiration and a message of spiritual values. And that's something which is really quite powerful and something we Again, you don't have to be a card-carrying official rabbi in order to have that that responsibility and to have that role and to have that opportunity. It's for every single one of us. Every single one of us has the opportunity and the responsibility to go out there and to share and to make the world feel like a better, most spiritual, more spiritual kind of uplifted, uplifted kind of a place. And that's what each of us has to do. So I don't know if you have any specific questions that you'd like to ask perhaps about my interactions or about the kinos or about what kind of messages we could take home. Welcome your questions on SMS 34519. You can send a message on Telegram on 0618951019. You can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Uh, it's a very, very interesting week to try and condense into the amount of time that we have together. I'll try to do my best to share some of the, that inspiration with you. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So yeah, there we go. Um, talking some of the stories, some of the experiences about the kinos. Just before that, I've got to tell you that Pick and Pay and Norwood Hi-Fi have these pocket-saving sweet deals just for you. They've got Pick and Pay kosher lamb riblets for just 149 rand 99 per kilo. Pick and Pay kosher fish minced hake at a very low 129.99 per kilo. Pick and Pay kosher beef burgers are just 99.99 per kilo. Nori bre- pressed Beef, 150 grams for 35 rand 99. And nori salami is only 36 rand 99. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper and only while stocks lost. Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper is the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. Well, there you go. I have to tell you, whoever was arranging the kinos, the gathering of Chabad Shluchim, uh, the Chabad rabbis in New York last week, they certainly had to buy a lot. I don't think they went to pick and pay Norway, though. Dinner for 5,800 people. One of the most beautiful things that happened at that dinner is they shared the individual stories of three rabbis and just amazing discoveries of people within their community who either did not know they were Jewish or knew that they were Jewish but had absolutely no connection to the Judaism. It was, it was really, really fascinating, beautiful. Um, the one story in particular, so it was it was done on a video, and there's this rabbi who is the Chabad in Slovakia. Okay, sounds like a, an interesting place, I suppose, to go. And he tells the story how he lands up going to Slovakia, and he visits in the there's a Jewish cemetery in Bratislava, and he goes to visit the cemetery and he goes to visit his grandfather's grave because he's named after his grandfather. And when he gets there, he sees that on the grave it says that the grandfather had died young and had been unable to complete his his. Um, Mission, I suppose, was the word, his mission in life. So he feels like he's got to go now, complete the mission. I mean, it's quite a powerful thing, actually, if you think about it, right? It's quite a, it's quite a thing. Anyway, so he tells the story. He says what happened was there, well, they, they, he tells the story in the video and then the catalyst, the, the protagonist of the story is actually the person who tells part of the story. So there's this guy. He's 30 something years old and he is, 
um, his his grandmother passes away. And when the grandmother passes away, you know, he arranges a proper funeral for her, as he would have expected to do. And then they've got to clean up her apartment. So this young guy, this 30-something-year-old guy, says to his mother, he says, listen, you go clean, take, take whatever it is that you want from the apartment. And after that, you can, uh, you know, we'll just sell the rest. And we'll just get rid of the rest. So... The mother goes, starts going through some of the things in the apartment. The next thing she phones her son, she says, listen, there's something over here that I've, I've got to tell you about. That's total surprise. And the short story is that she discovers amongst her mother's papers, she discovers that, that her mother was Jewish. This woman was Jewish. She had survived the Holocaust. And because of the incredible trauma of the Holocaust, she didn't want her children to ever have to go through anything like that again. So she decided to bury her Jewish identity, never told her children that they were Jewish, and hoped that way she could protect them from any anti-Semitism in the future. And now that she had passed away, this information emerged. And this guy suddenly has this realization that he that he's Jewish there in the middle of Slovakia. And where is he going to find a rabbi in Slovakia? I mean, surely there's no rabbi in Slovakia. And he starts to do his research, and he finds this Chabad rabbi. And they, they hook up and they connect. And obviously, you can't just accept a walk-in and say, listen, you claim to be Jewish. I'm sure you are. You know, they do the research, and they discover, sure enough, that this, this grandmother was Jewish. He's his mother's mother's Jewish. The, the guy's Jewish. And he starts to get involved and he, uh, he buys himself a tefillin and, uh, and a talus. It was like really, really beautiful story. Beautiful, moving story. And they show this video and then this guy gets up to speak. This guy himself, he gets up to speak and he's just like so grateful. He says, I want to thank the Rebbe for having sent a rabbi to Slovakia. Otherwise, what, where would I have gone? What would I have done? Fascinating. And, and what that really drove home is how there are these people all over the world, probably here in South Africa too, people who for one reason or another either don't have any awareness of what their Jewish identity means or they don't even know that they have a Jewish heritage. And then there's these, these people all over the world just creating an opportunity, you know, where people can connect if they need to as in this particular case. And there was another story that was told by another rabbi who I actually know personally, Rabbi Mendy Chitrik, he's the Chabad in Istanbul, that she had the opportunity to be uh, in Istanbul, speak for his community, visited this beautiful, magnificent shul. And he says, you, you have to realize that there's been a, a Jewish presence in Turkey, in Istanbul in particular, uninterrupted for two 1,700 years since the time of the prophets they identified that the prophet of Vadia had actually spent time in Constantinople as it was called then or maybe it wasn't even called Constantinople yet 2,700 years Jewish community now unfortunately it's a much smaller community and it has its challenges but he tells the story he gets a phone call from this Muslim woman and she says that she needs to speak to the rabbi Anyhow, they get together, and she tells the story that her mother, who was an older, uh, an older woman, had developed dementia and began to speak in a language that none of them recognized. And it was really creepy, and they didn't know what to do with this information. Eventually, they recorded her, sent it to a linguistic expert, and discovered that she was speaking Yiddish. Yiddish in Turkey. If you can imagine how incongruous that is at the best of times. And they, they do a whole search and it turns out that this woman was Polish. She came from Lodz. She went to Auschwitz. 
as the only member of her family to survive, was so traumatized from the experience that she moved as far away from anything Jewish as she possibly could, went to Istanbul, landed up marrying a Muslim fellow, practiced as a Muslim, and here at this stage of her life, I guess, was no longer able to hide her identity. One of the things that happens sometimes with dementia is that a person will go back to to, to very old and early memories and kind of behave according to those memories. And that's what happened to her. That's what happened to her. And so here's this girl, this woman, who grew up a whole life Muslim and now needs to speak to the rabbi. And she's got all this documentation. They've got the details, the birth certificate of her mother. They've, they find the, 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 you know, the Nazis kept immaculate detail about the transport. So they find which train she was on when she went to, to Auschwitz. And here she is in the middle of Istanbul suddenly confronting the fact that she actually is Jewish. These are the kind of things that you hear every single time. I mean, every, every single year when I go to the, to the kinos, to this great gathering of these Chabad rabbis from all over the world, every single year, these are the stories that happen again and again and again. And it's just incredible how many people there are hidden all over the place who uh, are just kind of, I suppose, waiting for somebody to come and, and find them and, and uncover them and release the uh, neshama spark that they have lingering somewhere deep, deep inside. It's, it's really, really fascinating stuff, really fascinating. Had the opportunity to spend quite a lot of time with a group of guys who had come from the UK. Some of them I know from before. Uh, so we, we, we spent some, some really good quality time. And again, you just, you, you know, you hear their stories and you hear people coming from all walks of life and how they connect and how they feel that here is their opportunity to turn themselves on spiritually here is their opportunity to get in touch with their soul here's their opportunity to to connect very very beautiful and very powerful and and uh see i see we've got some technical problems i have to keep talking craig is that it? i have to keep talking no no ads i have to keep talking it's okay we can do that not the end of the world so uh it's just so many interactions and so many connections between people what was interesting to me very interesting was to discover that there i mean there's always people looking in the in the world of young chabad people looking for opportunities to go out you know there's there's once upon a time and there used to be all these places all over the world where you could go and you could start a community from scratch so the most recent chabad community to open for example is in myanmar now, there are not too many places left where you can go and start a community from scratch, absolutely, you know, no, no existing infrastructure. Um, I guess Kigali was another one, quite recent. Um, so what's interesting is how you find all these creative ways that people are now connecting. For example, in Israel, they've started a whole system now where a hospital will get a dedicated Chabad rabbi because a hospital in Israel is the equivalent, I suppose, of a suburb anywhere else, where there's, between the healthcare professionals and between the patients and the extended families, there's a tremendous amount of work and opportunity to connect with people that exists uh, in, in these environments. Really, really, really interesting to see. One of the things, and uh, I was kind of, I was kind of sworn to secrecy, so I can only share so much. But uh, keep your eyes open for this one. One of the things that I came across when I was there is there's a very, very innovative concept coming to the uh, technological, to the to the technological side of Judaism. Let's put it that way. That's that's coming soon. When I say soon, in just over two weeks' time, it's going to be really, really exciting. Young guys, fresh out of school, very innovative, looking to tackle 
Judaism from a different perspective. I'll give you a little bit of a, an, a heads up so you can, you can start finding more about it. Right now, all you can find is a countdown on their website. That's all that's available. The website is A-Z-O-I. That spells Azoi. A-Z-O-I dot org. And just coming off the back of this whole Kinos experience, they've got this concept that they want to take to market in uh, mid-December. And uh, quite, I mean, from the first first look that I had, because I had access, <laughs> it's going to be something really, really special and something really exciting. So uh, just just pop on to their to their website and have a look. You get a countdown over there. They've got, uh, I think they've got some social media that you can track as well, just to get a sense of what this whole thing is about and what they're going to be doing. But that's what's happening in the world today, just as we find innovation in, in every other sphere of life, innovation in the healthcare world, innovation in the business world, innovation in the tech world, innovation in social services, innovation and transportation. So needless to say, there's innovation in Judaism. And that's what's so amazing. Every single time you go back there and you find that there's a new innovation. So he's reaching out for something new. So the one year it's an online school and the next year it's a particular app that you could use. And then the next year it's this way of putting people together. As I was leaving, literally leaving to go to the airport, a guy comes to me and he says, do you know anybody in South Africa who would like to study with a person on a regular basis because we've got this whole international Chavrusa program. So you've got people in, in various places around the world and you schedule a time and you have a uh, Chavrusa session. You have a one-on-one session with, with somebody with a study partner somewhere in the world and it just kind of fits into your schedule. So when you think about all of these things and all of these opportunities, we're not uh, we're not going to fall behind. That's one thing for sure. We're not going to fall behind. On the one hand, there's this amazing opportunity to connect face to face. That you have all these rabbis and their families all over the world, and they're there and available, and you can knock on the door and you can connect with them on a personal uh, on a personal note. And at the same time, you also have this tech that makes the whole Jewish experience so accessible to everybody everywhere. I could talk about this for a very long time because there were so many. Stories, anecdotes, interactions, uh, funny moments, uplifting moments, emotional moments, actually. There were some very stirring moments as, as well. So I guess that's normally what happens when, when you come back from the Kinnis Yudan. I've talking about it for a long time. I'd like to encourage you, if you've never had the opportunity to participate, why not try it? For the men, it's always in November time. For the women, it's in January, February time, depending on the year. And it's, it's something special, something inspiring, and something... Really, really recommended. So under ordinary circumstances, uh, we're kind of tied up over here. I don't know if uh, Craig will be ready to tie it up. He's not sure nothing seems to be working. But uh, he's going to play some music. Craig is innovative. He knows how to roll the punches. The system looks like it's uh, teetering on the edge of collapse. But uh, he'll play us out with some music. And have a wonderful Shabbos today. It's Rosh Chodesh. Please God, it should be a good month. It is Kislev, the month of miracles. So please God, we should see miracles in our lives. It's the month of light overcoming darkness. May the light in our life, no matter how small, overcome the darkness, no matter how daunting. And please God, we should be able to share good things. Catch you on the airwaves next week.